you say, your bagpipes should be easy to play. Yeah. And maybe it's because of the way that I came into it and when maybe things are changing now. But to me, I hear that and I go, <laughs> I mean, beautiful idea. Love the idea. That's a great fantasy, Andrew. But uh, Andrew Douglas, bagpipes, easy to play. Are you crazy? Yeah. That's a beautiful promise. I love the idea. Honestly, I feel like today my bagpipes are easy to play, but it took me decades to figure yes. out that was how it should be and like how to make it that way. And it didn't yep. need to take me that long to figure that out. No. And as a matter of fact, it's my belief that if your student finds their bagpipe hard to play at any point in their development, that's a failure on the teacher's part. That stings a little for me personally, but also yep. totally makes sense. Oh, and don't get me wrong. So th this would be, this is a teacher who, uh, by that definition, has been a horrible failure for a really long time. But, it's, but it comes with self-reflection. So my bagpipes are never hard to play. Mm. Ever. And if they are, mm. I make changes so that they're not anymore. And mm -hmm. the same is true. That, that is universally true. The one possible exception to that is when I play in the grade one band. In the grade one band, my bagpipes sometimes verge on the requiring more physical effort. Okay, but that's like a, that's an elite strategy. And mm -hmm. that's all that it is. It's not because the bagpipes should be hard to play, right? That's an exception to the rule uh, that you make that strategical choice. Strategical, is that a word? It is? It is now. Uh, I I'll think put it on I'm, Urban Dictionary. Yeah. You make that strategic. That's what I meant. You, you make that strategic mm. choice and for a couple of competitive, possible competitive advantages. But that's it. But other than that, other than when I'm playing bagpipes in grade one and at the level where you can win the piping at the Worlds, right? That's a pretty high elite outlier level. Uh, yeah. And if I'm not in that situation, I never play a bagpipe that's hard. It's always a hundred percent comfortable or I need to fix it. And we need to instill and, that in students from day one as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason to just carry on suffering when you could do something quick to fix it. And you do well, clarify and we probably and you should can't clarify learn, here too. Just sorry to Go cut ahead. you off again, Jim. You cannot yeah, no learn, you cannot learn the fundamentals if you're struggling to keep the instrument going. Yes, I'm sure we can all relate to that. And I certainly can say that I've seen this in students as well, because I can see it because it's happened to me as well, where it's, I know that there are some things that we could talk about that would help you with this or that. But right now, 85% of your brain, body and, and soul are going into just keeping the bag inflated. So if yes. I try to give you some nuanced information, it's, it's not because you're ignoring me. It's that there's no bandwidth left to be thinking about that stuff if you're just Amen. surviving. You're in survival mode. Exactly right. And by demanding that you're comfortable with your instrument, right, you're teaching yourself important skills. My bagpipe mm -hmm. might be hard to play in my grade one band, but that is a final finishing touch, right? It's like not, the bag- It's not how you should start. Like the bag is still perfectly airtight. Everything's yeah. still perfectly calibrated, right? My blowing cycle, it's still going to be done exactly the same way. I just have a harder chant to read in. Yeah. That's the only difference. And then the reason we do that at the elite level is for 2% added stability, 2% added like projection and volume. And that's it. Yeah. So the, <laughs> that's an important clarifier. 
at, we're, we should be thinking that the grade one bands all are playing hard bagpipes because their pipes are like leaky <laughs> and like poorly set up. It's because the tongues are yes. opened a little extra, the reeds are a little extra stiff to get a little more oomph out of the instrument. Right. It's like, uh, it's like uh, professional athletes. They don't take nutrition supplements be, uh, to cover up their bad diets. Right. right. It's, 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 an, it's on top of a good diet. It's yeah. on top of a great diet. And yeah. then they take the supplements because maybe it gives them the 1% placebo effect that can impact <laughs> their performance. You know what I'm saying? And it's the same. It, it's the same. It, 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 and I love that it, it just makes me laugh when I think about my own mentality. I'm absolutely the kind of person who would then be like, whatever supplement this major league baseball uh, pitcher is taking, I'm going to buy that supplement and take it myself without changing anything about my day-to-day -day diet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and just figured that's what's going to make me into them. I'm not going to eat more broccoli or something like that. That's Oh, crazy. for sure. <laughs> and how many grade five bands are out there playing hard reads? It, yeah, you get the equipment that you see the pros using, thinking like that's what will make me a pro. But it, it's not. You're kind of skipping over the main thing there, aren't you? And then you could have a, an elite player come to your band practice and say, oh, everybody needs to be playing a strong read. But that's not good advice at all. What mm, do people... What that's are, good what advice people, for where they're at. Exactly right. Exactly right. And uh, now we're starting to get into what makes a good teacher mm. or not. Or the fact that just because you're a great player doesn't automatically mean you'll be a great teacher. But what does a grade five band really need to do? They need to play the uh, optimal strength read that allows their bagpipe to be comfortable to play so that the people in that band can get the fundamentals learned, right? Yeah. Until those people have great fundamentals, there, there is no advantage to playing a harder read. That is important. I love hearing that. It's, it feels like more of that almost too good to be true promise, that it should be fun, comfortable, easy. And, and you do say here too, you say, you say, to me, that's you speaking, so to Andrew, it's obvious bagpiping has to be easy, fun and offer a sense of achievement for people to want to keep doing it. Yes. And then you go on to say the bagpipe must be comfortable to play from day one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not it gets comfortable 20 years later. It needs to yes. be comfortable from day one. Yes. A and you do clarify in this chapter too, Andrew, you do say you're going to break a sweat when you play the bagpipes, right? We're, you're not saying that this is going to be super duper, no physical exertion whatsoever, yeah. just that it's it funny. shouldn't be painful. Yeah, no matter how easy a bagpipe I play, like I have this, the bag, oh, it's out of the shot right now. Is it? Yeah, it's right there. My teaching bagpipe. I see uh, it peeking in. Yeah. Yeah, it's so easy to play. The read is so easy because sometimes when you're teaching someone to play, you could give them that as, as an example. And it's just very easy. It requires no effort, but I still sweat like a pig when I you, just got do like pig a... sweat. I don't know, but. I still sweat like crazy when I play that thing. It's craziness. I don't know what it is. It just turns on the sweat valves for me. Yeah, it, you have like, an autobiological response to the bagpipes now at this point. You what's just get the, it's like a Pavlovian, it's like a Pavlovian sweat response. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of your mouth watering, you just get sweaty. Yeah. So it's like, oh, my body's like, oh, bagpipes. I start just sweating immediately. <laughs> and then this is just to keep us totally focused on the task at hand. Uh, the, the sweat starts immediately. And then within about two to three minutes, Let's just say there is another bodily function that uh, has to be taken <laughs> of care of immediately for no reason at all. It's just, yeah. oh, there we go. All right. Yeah, exactly. You, you've, you've learned that your body somehow knows, like, when I'm doing this, it means I'm about to, like, 
be playing for a funeral or performing or something. And so uh, I just need to uh, yeah, clean things up and get ready for the long haul. <laughs> I almost wonder if it's like, what's the thing in your brain that does the fight or flight? I think starting to play the bagpipes for whatever reason just suddenly boosts the adrenaline. And so you get the sweat and all the other fun stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's very similar um, to when you're about to do a CrossFit workout. It's the same. Your body's like, uh-oh. But I don't know. It's weird, though. Hmm. Uh, Pipers, hit us in the comments if you experience anything, <laughs> anything <Tell> similar. <laughs> yeah. In detail. Tell us all about it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Jim, what were we even talking about? We should get restarted pain, painstakingly. I, I, I want to know if you, Andrew, would wear your bagpipes to space. What? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Would you wear your bagpipe in outer space? That's something I said a long time ago at a tuning clinic, and it's just stuck. But it's if you were going on a space walk out in outer space where there's no air, how much air leakage out of your suit would be acceptable to you? Right. None, please. <laughs> like what? No, seriously, though. Give me a number. Is it cool? Like maybe like 10, 10% air leakage, you still get to keep 90%. 10 is too much. I, f I feel like I'm not a NASA guy, but I've got to imagine there's got to be some amount of loss, maybe for exhaust or something, but I feel like it should be a decimal. We should be talking 0.07% of the air that comes into my suit will, ex will escape, so, but no more than that, please. Right. So you probably have your oxygen tank somewhere attached to you. And how much of that oxygen do you want to breathe versus how much do you want to just pointlessly vent into space. And then you probably have your task to do out there in outer space on your spacewalk. You have some sort of task you have to accomplish. How hard do you want it, but just going back to the previous point, how hard do you want it to be to breathe while you're doing that? Right. <laughs> As if a spacewalk wouldn't be stressful enough already. Though. That's my point. Exactly. Yeah. So it ends up to be a great analogy. So would you wear your bagpipes to outer space? That means we need to set up our instrument so that how much air is wasted? How much air are we willing to waste when we play our bagpipes? I say none. None. That is, the, that is the ideal that we're shooting for at all times. Just like you would if you're setting up your spacesuit, we need to set up our bagpipes so that no air is wasted. Okay, mm. now, air is going to leave because it must leave through the reeds in order to make a sound. But how much do we want to leave through the reeds? And the answer is the absolute minimum. And you do mention here, too, if anybody doesn't already have a copy of the book, the book is a gift that keeps on giving because in this section here, you mentioned that one can register their book online in order to get yet more information about this vital passive skill of bagpipe maintenance, setting it up so yeah. that it is airtight, etc. Yeah. And the reason we call it a passive skill is because you're not worried about maintenance while you are playing. We want to worry about maintenance before we play. So we want to get the bag airtight and the joints airtight, reed seats airtight. And then we want to make sure our reeds are calibrated properly. That We're going to do all that ahead of time. And then during an actual performance or once we're rocking and rolling, we're not going to be worried about that skill. So that's why we call it passive. The active skills are all the other stuff. Finger work yeah. and then instrument control items such as blowing steady, avoiding mental blowing anomalies, being able to get your pipes in tune. Those are all active skills that we do while we're playing. So if we are doing a good job with that set of passive skills, it allows us more bandwidth 
to focus on those active skills while we are playing. Correct. And it also helps us not to develop bad habits. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of bad habits, it's already come up a bit. One of my worst habits has been my posture. And you bring up in the next section, picture, perfect, piping, posture. Yes. I get excited anytime I see any kind of alliteration anyway. That's a so great picture, perfect, great. piping, posture. I don't know who came up with that, but uh, I, I feel like Whoever Camille. Did, a genius. I, yeah, I feel like Camille, I feel like it was probably me that came up with that only because this is horrifyingly cheesy. So like, yeah, like Camille has more style. So I don't think she came up with this one, but I could be wrong. We'd have to ask her. The naming convention aside, the brilliant alliteration, though it may be here, we've got a photo of, uh, oh, who's this guy here? We'll pull it up right here and take a look at this photo of a bagpiper. That's me exhibiting pretty good posture. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got your bass drone is stuck out at roughly 45 degrees. You got your blow stick comfortably in your mouth. You got your left wrist not involved in squeezing the bag. That's an important Not impinged, point. yeah. Yep. And then you've got your chanter aligned with the center of your body. Andrew, when I was when I was a teenager, I love that I have an injured back in a way because it's about the only macho story I can ever tell. Yes. It's not nearly as macho as I like to make it sound. I have that complex as well. It's yeah. if I get like a <laughs> if I get a deep cut somewhere. I'm like, yeah. ow, that, that cut is a really negative thing. But then there's always the upside, which is, this is pretty cool. You're like, pretty I'm going cool to have scar a scar this. from this. And that makes me, <laughs> yeah. But as long so, as it's so, not too bad, as long as it's not a scar across my face, then I'll be happy. It's not like a Tyrion, face, as long as it's not a Tyrion Lannister. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I managed to break a bone in my back doing some backyard boxing. Speaking of alliteration. Congratulations. Again, Congratulations. So not cool if I tell you any more details of the story. I'm just going to leave it yeah, there don't. because Stop it there. goes yep. down from there. But because of that, I was particularly in pain from playing bagpipes. I'd already been playing bagpipes for a little while. And because of that experience, I got really terrible muscle spasms and stuff going on when I would try to play my bagpipes. So I had to start thinking really carefully at that point about why I was not standing in a neutral position when playing bagpipes, yes. right? Because I would just contort like crazy to play my pipes. Something more or less like this. And really, I'm not exaggerating very much at all as I do that, right? And so I had to start thinking about bringing my shoulders down to a relaxed yep, position. Had to think about blowpipe length. And that you bring that up at pretty much every point of posture discussion in this chapter. You want to talk to me a little bit about why blowpipe yes. length is such a big deal? Yeah. And then it's I'll a go on point. to chanter so position blow, too. Yeah, blowpipe length is not one of the points of posture. However, it's a key correlate to basically all of them. So the base drone angle. So mm. first of all, we want that base drone to rest naturally on our shoulder. That, and by the way, the four points of posture are in no particular order. We need all of them. So just because I'm talking about base drone first doesn't mean... That's the first most important thing. It doesn't mean that at all. So we That's first of all, we want the base drone. corner in the photo. Right, exactly. Yeah. So we want the base, one of the things is we want the base drone resting naturally on the shoulder at a 45 degree angle. We don't want it pointing straight up, right? And we don't want it pointing totally sideways. We want it roughly mm -hmm. 45 degrees. If it's 35 degrees, that's probably fine. If it's 55 degrees, it's probably fine. But we don't want 90 and we don't want zero. <clears throat> mm. So the blowpipe length plays a huge role in that. If the blowpipe length is really long, it forces the front of the bag downward in space, 
which m f forces the bass drone up. So you'll find that the blowpipe length is important there. It's also very important in order to get the chanter to align with the center of your body and not to be off to the side or anything like that. Okay. And I then still struggle with that got. one, honestly. The, my, my chanter, I used to play very much, really speaking of a 45 degree angle, really about 45 degrees across my chest and belly. And yeah. by and the way, do I that do again. With it now. Look at your, just hold it in that position. Look at the angle of your right wrist when you do that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. So bend your wrist like that and now wiggle your fingers. Yeah. It's super, super not comfortable and inefficient, right? And you wouldn't be mm -hmm. able to do it very long without cramping up. What position does your wrist need to be? It needs to be just normal position where your fingers have full dexterity, even on your mm -hmm. right hand. And then that's even more of a problem on the left hand. We want a natural wrist angle and we want the forearm muscles here not to be impinged. So Jim, go ahead and just grab your left arm like this with your right hand. Just grab it really tight, press, pressing yeah. into this part, the soft part. Mm -hmm. Now wiggle your fingers. How's that feel? Feels terrible, right? So terrible, that's the bag. Yeah. That's the bag pushing against your forearm. Okay, now do that. Hold it really tight. And then now do what most bagpipers do if they're not corrected, which is bend your wrist backwards at an angle like this now. <laughs> right. Okay, now wiggle it, your fingers. That hurts before How I many, even start wiggling my fingers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. How many Crun Lewis can you do at the end of your P-Brock when you're in yeah. this position? Forget those, man. My F doublings do don't it. even have a chance. Now, how many bagpipers have years and years of ingrained posture like that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, it's I'm no wonder. Sure, yeah. It's no wonder you can't make any Crun Lewis at the end of your P-Brock, meaning you can't take any prizes in your grade four competition, meaning you're wondering why you do this anymore, meaning you're probably going to quit sometime soon. Mm -hmm. And there it is. That's just a posture thing. That's something we can learn before we even open up any reads on our pipes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so fundamental. And and I don't know, tell me if do you think there's value to this, Andrew, because I do feel like obviously what we want is to have informed instruction so that everybody as they're learning have excellent they'll they'll have excellent posture from the beginning. However, there probably will be at least small tweaks, in some cases, big changes to be made after by the piper themselves after they've been playing for long enough to get more of a feel of how things are going. And based on that kind of line of thinking, all of us, no matter how long we've been playing, we should not be thinking to ourselves, oh, bagpiping posture, I've been playing for 20 years, I'll skip this chapter, right? Let's, let's all take a minute to just look in the mirror for just a sec and see if our shoulders are off center, if our chanter is twisted, if our bag is so low that it's getting in the way of our forearm muscles. Because I feel like there's, even with good instruction, you'll get good general information, but there's going to be like precise customization for every human on their specific bag, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. That they'll be able to figure out as they go. Yeah. I don't think the, I don't think it has to be that precise. I just, I, uh, we'll start with big changes first. And then you, it might come down to sm small details later. Oh, eight and a quarter inch blowpipe length is better than eight inch. Mm -hmm. And you'll discover that maybe you can discover that later, maybe just to get that final extra mile. But yeah, got to start with the big things first. Correcting, getting that left arm in a natural position is totally urgent. Of the four points of posture, that's probably the most important. Mm -hmm. But then all the other ones will support you in achieving that as well. So we want the natural arm angles at all times. 
Otherwise, none of the finger work do the work you do on the practice channel is going to translate. Yeah. I really like that you present this as you say the bagpipe should fit your body. You should not try to fit your body to your bagpipe. Amen. Exactly right. I, I like thinking that way. Because then I think, okay, if I'm not holding my bagpipes, how do I stand? And then I go, now how do I get my bagpipes to fit into that? Yes. Exactly Instead right. Of being like, I gotta I gotta climb in, you know, climb into my bagpipes here. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Exactly right. And by the way, I think women anatomically have different upper body shape than men, right? So that all has to be adjusted for. And everyone's a little bit different. And so we need to find that ideal posture, regardless of our body shape, where the bagpipe naturally fits our frame. What's mm -hmm. different for me than it, it's different for me than it is for you, Jim, right? We're going to have different configurations, mm -hmm. but the concept is identical. And just while we're on the topic, those four points of posture come from that golden rule that you mentioned. The golden, uh, yeah. rule is, the golden rule is the bagpipe needs to fit us and not vice versa. I'm just really, in, I'm, I'm really trying hard to hold back on another. Here's one more reason to think that the Piper's Dojo is a cult. We also have a golden rule over here. <laughs> Some... We got many. We have many golden rules. That's yeah, not actually gold the rules. golden rule. <laughs> not yeah. capital T, capital G, the golden rule. It's just a golden rule. Yeah. Cults are just extreme, unrefined mainstream religions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yep. maybe that's a topic for another show. Maybe. Do we feel <laughs> good about posture or should we dig more into a couple of these points? What do you think? Let's finish the, let's finish the chapter with broad strokes because we could do a whole another hour on posture. Okay. Then I want to say to you what some people might be thinking as they read this, because I'm reading from the book here. You say, now you may be thinking, but Andrew, I've seen, insert famous Piper's name here, they don't do insert non-negotiable thing that I've talked about in the book so far, you know, here. Um, sure, right? I mean, not to not to rag on him, Matt McIsaac, my favorite bagpiper in the world, if I had to pick just one, so good. He's amazing. But he does have some weird things going on, right? But, like, we've talked yeah, about that Jim, before. Jim, you're, you're <laughs> terrible with the butts, yeah. Well, and, and uh, it was cool... <laughs> It was cool. We mentioned this a long time ago on one of the podcasts, and it was cool yeah. to see a Matt McIsaac, you know, comment in kind of like maybe alluding to some of the stuff we've already talked about. Like, man, it would be cool if I had learned that uh, at an earlier stage. Uh, but now, you mm -hmm. know, he's in the habit and he has this thing that he does. And uh, yeah, you're going to find exceptions to all of this stuff out there. You know, like there are yeah. golfers out there that have non-conventional swings, although they're very now as the level field gets better and better, that's more and more rare. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. is Spud Webb is Spud Webb in the NBA Hall of Fame? I'm not quite sure, but he was a great professional basketball player who could dunk, who was only like five foot two. However, yes. you're Spud gonna, Webb is who you're came gonna to find my mind as well. Yeah. Yeah. However, you're gonna find that 99 times out of a hundred, you would much prefer to be six seven than five two if you're gonna play mm -hmm. competitive basketball, right? Yeah. So these are the basic guidelines and these are the principles that we need to employ when we're learning, if at all possible. I think mm -hmm. going into the future, as a matter of fact, it would be really interesting now that 20 years have passed. It would be really interesting to look at the players in the silver medal at Owen and Inverness and see how many of them have picture perfect piping posture compared to 20 years ago. 
And I think what yeah, you'll find yeah. is over time, the average is going to be more and more perfection of posture as the standard goes up and up. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you be clear. Not that I think Matt McIsaac would take adv advice from me anyway. Matt McIsaac, please don't change anything. Whatever you're doing obviously is working and I love to listen to you play. So please don't change a thing. Good. I, I, th yeah. I think it's good that you did that, Jim. Good job. Just want to make really clear. But then we have we're four not... sound. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just want to say we're two good guys, me and you. We're, we're not out there, guys, Andrew. We're, we're not out there. Uh, we're the best. We're two not guys. out there. <laughs> we're not out there trying to offend Lincoln Hilton, all the judges in the world, and Matt McIsaac in the same show. It just sometimes happens by accident. And I'm genuine in my just adoring admiration of these people. This is this is why they come to mind. Spud Webb too. If anybody wants like some really to have your mind blown, watch Spud Webb dunk in in like slightly slow motion. You'd swear the guy's flying. He just keeps going up. He yeah. just keeps going. Spud Webb, if you're out there, please don't take offense to uh, <laughs> please, today's Spud show. Spud Webb, I love you. <laughs> I had several of your basketball cards when I was a kid. Please don't. We've got four sound layers of a drone read. What the heck? What is that? It took me a minute to Let's figure this out. That. I had to read the chapter. Oh, okay. We'll skip that. We could. That's an important thing, but we can talk about that some other time. How about this then? The steady cycle. Maybe talk to me right. about the uh, the blow squeeze interaction because that exactly. is tricky. That is really yeah, tricky. And, I feel like I still don't have a good handle on that in my plan, honestly. And and then mine when I whenever I demo this with just one drone going, mm -hmm. I have plenty of moments where it's like, oh, that wasn't steady at all. So this that means mm -hmm. that this is a skill that you might not ever fully perfect. Okay, but once we get our posture established, we will open up one drone in the learning process. By the way, I. A sneeze is coming on. It could happen at any moment. Usually when you... Oh, I, I missed the mute button. Too. There you go. The button. <laughs> ah, well, I was trying to mute. Okay. So uh, now we're going to open up just one drone. Okay. And with that one drone open, now we can focus specifically on the physical steady blowing cycle. We want to blow in. We want to transition from blowing to squeezing. Then we want to squeeze for a while. Then we want to transition back from squeezing to blowing again. So that's like a four-step process. It requires a lot of crossfading to keep everything smooth. And that is the basic skill of physical steady blowing, which we can now start to think about at this juncture. But, uh, we're not doing any finger work, no nothing. We're just working on that skill. And uh, yeah, it's a, that's a tough one, something that you want to do, and something that basically anybody can do at this stage. You can do it even if you don't have six tunes learned with all the embellishments, right? This could be something you integrate really quite early in the becoming a bagpiper process. I, I'm assuming that it's not just me that as I read this, like keeping in mind your promise that like bagpiping can be uh, fun, <laughs> that your bagpipes could be easy to play, et cetera. This is a pretty big one for me. Like I've been in situations before and as I think about it, I think probably mostly in parades, maybe funerals where things went on for a long time. So I'm playing for a very long time where I realize suddenly that like I'm like my mouth is exhausted, right? Because it almost hasn't left clamping on that blowpipe. And yep. I realize sometimes I could teeth almost because I'm, I'm biting down on them for sure. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I could almost even stop using my squeezing arm. Because I've gone into this like wild blowing mode where I'm blowing my bag so hard. It's at 101%. I'm stretching the leather. 
And then as I gasp for air, it barely starts to contract and I'm blowing again. It's like I've lost yeah. track of how chill I could be while playing bagpipes, right? It could be the yes. opposite experience. My mouth could be getting a good break in between breaths. I could be breathing yes. naturally, but I yes. get so wound up like that, you know? Yep. So your natural blowing cadence is a key aspect of this skill, which by the way, mm -hmm. if you just start uh, with a chanter in and the transition to the pipes process, if you just start with a chanter in, you're never going to get that one, right? Mm -hmm. The natural cadence. We want to blow and squeeze in our bag at approximately the same cadence that we would just breathe naturally. So mm -hmm. we would want to go exhale for several seconds, inhale for several seconds, exhale for several. That's what we would like when we play the bagpipes so that it's natural, so that it's not hard, so that we're not straining. And so that's something that we should practice right now at this stage. Yep. Here's one of the things that's so challenging about this, I think. It, it's such an intuitive thing with making sound, right? That if we're going to talk or sing, it's as we're actively pushing air that the sound comes out. Mm -hmm. And if we yep. look at a, a horn, a, a, a trumpet, any, any direct blow instrument, that's how it functions. And so yes. if we've played any of those instruments, we've trained that way. And at this point, we have all been playing the practice chanter where when you are blowing, the sound is coming out. So there's like yes. this mental connection that goes from my brain through the bag to the chanter, and I'm still thinking I'm blowing through the chanter. And I got to shift that, like, where do I put that locus? Is that the word for it? Where do I put mm -hmm. that thing that is making sound come out of the chanter? It's got to stop yes. being here. It's got to move to under my arm. Then here can relax. Does that, is that making sense? Yeah. It's a great insight. So the bagpipe functions differently than all these other instruments that you're referring to. And that insight that you had, where I've got to shift the way I think about things from coming from my mouth to coming from my arm, that's spot on, right? Really, and again, this is more of a can, subconscious can we, can thing. We just, I just want to like, I want to like pause a second. I'm like, I'm gonna, yeah, I need to frame this moment in my mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Spot Jim, on. This is, <laughs> Good one. Good one. So, uh, so yes, exactly. So I actually think of all of the tone of my instrument as coming from my squeezing arm. And all I'm doing with my mouth is feeding my arm. So the mouth feeds my arm so that my arm can provide the constant pressure for my reed. And that actually is the way I've evolved to think about producing bagpipe tone over the years. And that's something that we want to try to instill in students as best as we can. But it's a tough thing, and probably for the reasons you mentioned. Yeah, mm. <clears throat> exactly. And again, like that steady blowing, it's not as super basic as you think. It's a very difficult thing to do. So we need to learn it in that isolated situation. I haven't, I don't have the time put into thinking about it or any kind of expertise to suggest that this is a legitimately important or valuable thing. Just personal experience. I feel in a lot of ways, my blowing with my mouth blown pipes did improve when I started learning to play bellows blown pipes. Yep, sure. Because that forced me to move it away from up here, my, my face. Yeah. I don't think that's necessary. I'm not saying that everybody who wants to play Highland pipes has to learn how to play bellows pipes in order to play Highland no. pipes well, just that it might be a thing that's helpful sometimes. That forces you to learn to use your arms to control the pressure. Mm. You, mm -hmm. Your mouth isn't available to you. So that's why that can be such a useful tool. So we've got the, well, so we've got the know, physical blowing cycle happening. Now, what happens next? I've, I want to, 
I feel like it's important to focus on that arm just a little bit because you do bring up this thing that I think I've missed. I missed with students and stuff all the time. I missed myself was that your squeezing arm is actually always engaged. It's not that your arm turns off Mm -hmm. and then turns back on. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how like going from fully relaxed to engaged is a jerky process. It's not smooth. But going from, say, I don't know, 12% engaged to 80% engaged, that can be smooth. Yes. Exactly. So your arm is always slightly engaged, even when you're blowing in, right? Your, your arm is still always there, a little bit engaged. We don't want the Donald Duck thing, or we don't want to end up doing this. This is what most pipers do, is so when they're blowing in, their, their arm just completely comes up off the bag. We don't want that. Right. When we're blowing yeah. in, we still want, the arm is still there. It's still there. It's still feeling the bag. It's still contributing, right? Even as we're blowing in. And then as we take a breath, our breath input goes to zero, so our arm input goes to 100. But our arm input never goes to zero. Yeah. I had a funny experience just two weeks ago with my second child's piano class. He w- they're learning that uh, what should we do with a drunken sailor song. Mm-hmm. And they've got different variations in the left hand with the accompaniment. And one of the variations, they take these chords, the standard chords that they would be playing, and they're adding a grace note, which is fun, a half step below the chord on a regular beat through the song. They're going, does that make sense? Sliding up to it. A little girl in the class goes, that doesn't sound good. I don't like that. And the teacher goes, oh, that's because this is supposed to mimic bagpipes. And I go, ah, this is another of those cases where it's mimicking bad bagpipes, right? Because it does sound like an early piper who's going arm all the way off, right? Funny story. My very first competition ever with the grade five Mohawk Valley Fraser's Pipe Band, we played Drunken Sailor to end the medley. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. And we won. We won that. Oh, yeah. So it's definitely got a stamp of approval. But this comes up, I think we might have talked about it before too, in the Brigadoon soundtrack as well. You have this da-da, da-da, which is supposed to implicate bagpipe drones, but it only does if it's bad bagpipe drones, right? And this is how we get there, is by having our not smooth arm, not smooth blowing, right? And we're doing that. I've done it, right? Where you, you're playing and you do this like like this regular heave thing as you're as you're like blowing and squeezing. All right, Jim. <laughs> That's calm, what our drones sound like. It's getting, no, it's getting too crazy here. There, Camille's going to have a lot of fun taking little chunks out of this one. There's some, there've been a few moments where we're both like doing our, our wrist squeeze thing together. Yeah. We're going to get in so much trouble. Uh, let's move on, Jim. Okay. So we're going to do a little tuning next, right? So here you say, you may have already heard in your travels that tuning is about eliminating the beats between drones, right? Yes. So you say, let's take a semi-legitimate walk down the physics lane. And together we shall understand what that means. Don't worry. Exactly. It won't hurt too much. And I do, I will be pulling up the visuals that you use here because I think it's really helpful to look at them. It's constructive and destructive interference, I think, mm. is what we're dealing with when we have two things that are vibrating. And if they're vibrating at the ex- exact same rate, we're good. But then if they're vibrating at a slightly different rate, you, and then you can check out the diagrams, you'll see that they constructively interfere at times, Mm -hmm. okay, causing the volume to go up, and then they destructively interfere at other times, causing the volume to go down. 
right? And depending on how close or far away they are together, if one is at 441 hertz and the other one's at 440, you'll hear that constructive and destructive cycle one time per second, which is cool. But that beating, Richard Parks called it vibrations. You can name it whatever you want. But that wah, wah, wah kind of beating sound. I, I, I was going to say, I like to call it the wah-wahs. Exactly. Yeah. And that's fine. What you, that's what you're referring to there is the, that interference cycle between the two waves. Now, that's a very simple way of explaining it. And of course, there are layers of complexity that get added in, for example. Uh, eventually, not right now. In the beginning, we just listen for wah-wahs. In the future, uh, you'll be listening to wah-wahs between the fourth harmonic of the tenor drone and the sixth harmonic of the bass drone. Those are also producing their own special fun set of wah-wahs that we also want to eliminate, right? And it gets super fun. I haven't been able to crack into that yet. So that's but, complex, right? But what yeah. we can do, what we can do early in the process of learning the pipes is we can open up a second drone. Okay, mm. so we have now we have two tenors. They're the, producing the exact same sound. And now we can practice bringing them in and out of tune and we can learn the art of hearing those beats, learn the art of reaching up and tuning those drones. We can do that all now. And I think that's what yeah. we should do. This Before is another spot happen. where it's so helpful to have other people there just to show, to talk about, to, to work your way into this. Mm -hmm. It does occur to me too that really good didgeridoo players will use this exact concept on purpose to get a tone from the lips buzzing and then bring in their voice as well and bring that up close to maybe in tune if they want to but if you get yep. close enough you can get those wah-wahs to be so regular and rhythmic yes um, above or below it's, it's it can be pretty cool so this can be this isn't always a villainous effect to have out of a musical instrument you can use it to your advantage yep the didgeridoo and the bagpipes and a lot of these instruments the harmonic spectrum that's produced is really interesting and can be manipulated. And mm. then sometimes the other thing I would mention is when we play the bagpipes, typically we want the drones to be perfectly in tune. But there are lots of instances where great music can be produced by purposefully detuning things. It's all on the table. But what we're doing at this stage is we're learning to control the frequencies of those drones and we're learning to bring them perfectly into tune if we want to. That's the baseline yeah. skill. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I am definitely the kind of person who would be very tempted to be like, well, it's out of tune, but that's because I'm doing something edgy. And <laughs> then if that's <laughs> true, <laughs> if that's true, there may or may not be merit to what you're doing, right? But if you are not actually in control, then that's just BS. That's what I'm saying, really, is that in my, in some people's case, that's legit. But in my case, no, I'm just not taking the time. I don't have the skill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm making an excuse for myself. Yeah. You see that more on the fingerwork side of things where a piper yeah. will insist that they are expressing a tune where what's really going on is they're unable to control it whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> right. I made so, up my own embellishment. <laughs> that's right. A lot of pipers are obsessed with strong, weak, medium, weak. Okay, but, but they're obsessed with that before they can even play an e-doubling at the time that they intend. But we digress. Let's not get too far off the bandwagon here. Do, speaking of getting off the bandwagon, do you feel like there's, do you have any succinct advice for a person like me who just can't very well hear the relationship between a bass drone and the tenors? Or is that a bigger topic that needs its own, its own dedicated episode kind of thing? Yeah, that's a bigger topic that might merit its own episode. However, it's definitely harder to tune the bass to the tenor 
than the tenor to the other tenor. It's yeah. definitely harder. But then I think I'll summarize it today by just saying, wah, wah, you're just going to have to suck it up and figure it out. I love that. <laughs> it is harder. It is definitely harder. But if you want an in-tune bagpipe, you're going to have to learn how to tune it. Uh, I yeah. think it, it was really interesting. Recently, we, we released a little snippet where Jack Lee was talking about how, guess what? He has trouble hearing that too. And it's a trial and error thing. It's something that he has to practice. Um, and I find the, well, the more I practice, the easier that one gets. And yeah, there are little tricks you can employ, but let's just leave it at that for today. It is definitely a harder yeah. thing. And it's a harder thing that every bagpiper has to deal with. Yeah. Oh, but well, it's also good to know, one thing you should know is Glenn Brown does not find it hard. Yeah. Uh, well, which, really, uh, which is really annoying. Like, what do you mean you don't find it hard? He's just like, I just yeah. don't find it hard. And then, you know, so there you go. Uh, He's the chosen one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is somebody uh, in the world who can do it. So maybe there are some people out there who don't find it hard, but I, I find it hard. And I was but, comforted when Jack Lee told me that he also found it hard. I wanted to say the same thing. Yeah, if 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 that's if nothing else, a plug for the 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 tuning algorithm uh, course that you've put together. Uh, just hearing Jack Lee say that made exactly. me feel so much better. Not like there's an excuse now; I don't have to think about it. Just more like, okay, I I, I can dig into this and work on it because even Jack Lee is working on it. I'm not just a, a failure for not being able to hear this easily. Yeah, Jim, I have three minutes left before I have a meeting. How do we wrap this thing yeah. up? We wrap it up the way it wraps up in the chapter here. You give us a couple of ob objectives to finish with. Objective one is to produce and maintain a steady blowing cycle. Objective two is to hear and make adjustments, which will eliminate the beating between drones. Yep. That's how we work our way toward tuning. And if we've been doing all the other stuff that we talked about in the chapter earlier, working toward that, that's achievable. If we skip that other stuff, it's not achievable, right? So we've yes. got to kind of work through this systematically. Exactly right. And the whole thing, this the whole Bagpipe Freedom book, the whole process, the whole methodology, it's exactly, you said the magic word. It is a system, okay? So, it, it, and systems, it's not, this is not like a computer system. This is just like a system. We use systems all day long at all sorts of things that we do. For example, you have a system when you do the dishes. There is a system. Mm. And by the way, the degree to which your system is good affects the quality and efficiency of the output, right? So it's like, if I have a good system for doing dishes, it doesn't take long. If I have a poor system, it does take long, right? <laughs> the, the same thing is true. The bagpipe freedom process is the system for learning to play the pipes, yes. And it's also a system for revamping what you're for auditing or revamping what you're currently doing to make good adjustments. So that's what this is. A quick review, right? We're going to start all the way back in the first phases. We talked about rhythmic control. That's the first part of the system. Can you work on scale navigation before you work on rhythmic control? Yes. But the system, okay, that we've developed, and it's from, it comes from the discovery that rhythm comes first. So we, the rhythm is the first thing in the system. Then we do basic melody, which is navigating the scale cleanly with no crossing noises and getting good quality grace notes. And that allows us to put together some of the basic melodies that we need on the bagpipes. Now, what we talked about today is phase three, which is getting the bagpipes going a little bit, doing the initial steps. We should be able to do maintenance on our bagpipes and get that sucker airtight and efficient. 
then we should be able to get the posture dialed in, right? This is the ordering of things that we want to allocate our focus. Once we have our posture good, then we will open up a drone. We don't care. It's not, it's just one drone. We don't have to tune it yet. So we just open up the drone and we work on steady blowing. Get that skill. Notice it's just one thing at a time. Once we have that skill good, then we can turn on another tenor drone and we can work on the basics of tuning. Okay. We tune one drone to the other. Notice it's building on all those prerequisite skills. Like we have to be mm -hmm. able to, we have to be able to blow steady in order for tuning to go well, but we have that. So we do it. So then in phase four, which we'll do next time. Okay. Now it'll be time to take those basic bagpipe skills that we've developed and then combine it with the basic fingerwork skills that we've developed. And now the full bagpipe with both hemispheres starts to come together, which will be another long discussion. I'm thinking that's the system so far. You can have your own system if you want, but it should follow these same basic principles. And by the way, going all the way back to the original tangent, this system minimizes multitasking. Okay. And it absolutely minimizes the number of things you have to focus on at any given time, uh, which you can see the consequences of trying to focus on multiple things by just listening to this episode today. Way to bring it home. That was like, what a, that's how you put a bow on it. That's how you bring it full circle. Hey everybody, Andrew Douglas here from the Piper's Dojo. And I just want to say thanks so much for listening to today's iteration of the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, it would be super helpful to us and to a lot of bagpipers out there trying to find us. If you could give us a top-notch review on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast, particularly Apple, iTunes, and Spotify, and things like that, your review would be really, really helpful. So if you have a moment today, definitely go over there and help us out. Other than that, until we meet again on the podcast or somewhere else, thanks again for listening.